Hello, and welcome to the Church 860 podcast. My name is Pastor Chris, and I'm the lead pastor of Church 860 located in Westerville, Ohio. Our podcast will have daily episodes uploaded where we have curated some of the best Bible teaching from across the globe. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Psalm 78 is, of course, a very long psalm, but it does have messianic content, particularly in its opening verses in the prologue. So let's look, please, to Psalm 78 as we look at Messiah and prophecy in the Psalms. This is a maskil of Asaf, a maskil of Asaf. Listen, O my people, to my instruction. So therefore, it is didactic. It's there to teach something about doctrine. Incline your words to the words, incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable, and I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not conceal them from their children, but tell them to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and the wondrous works that he has done. Listen, my people, incline your ears to the word of my mouth. I'm going to speak to you parabolically. I'm going to speak to you in parables, dark sayings from old. Now notice the mention of the term in verse 4, we will not conceal them from the children. Inherent in parable is the idea of concealment. Concealment. It's not meant for everybody. Jews in Europe, because of anti-Semitism, they would speak Yiddish, a combination of German and Hebrew. So anti-Semitic non-Jews would not know what they were saying. Prior to 1922 in Ireland, Irish nationalists known as Fenians would speak Gaelic to each other. So the British would not know what they were saying. Black Americans invented a nomenclature among Blacks today, usually referred to as jive, but it goes back to the 19th century, to the era of slavery. So people wouldn't know what they were talking about. Now, this, these languages, they, they were languages or they were slang. You had to be in the club to know what was being talked about or sung. For instance, in the Black American gospel tradition, this is going back to the 19th century, everyone knows the Black spiritual hymn, ah, swing low, sweet chariot, coming forth to carry me home. Swing low, sweet chariot, look over Jordan and what do I see? Coming forth to carry me home, and of angels coming after me. Well, it has obvious meaning for going to heaven for a Christian. That's an obvious meaning. But in the era of abolitionism, where the people in the northern states were opposed to slavery, New England particularly being a hotbed of abolitionism, 
but also the emergence of leaders like Abraham Lincoln who opposed slavery. There was something known as the Underground Railroad. It would help runaway black slaves escape across the Potomac River into the north or the Ohio River in, in, in the Midwest out of the slave states into the free states. And when, they're in, when, when the signal was going out, they'd go to church because the slave owners let them have some kind of religious service usually. And they would sing, swing low, sweet chariot, coming forward to carry me home. They knew that that was the signal that that week, the underground railroad was coming, band of angels coming after me. These were the white abolitionists. You know, the people inspired by Harriet Beecher Stowe, who wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin and so forth, and, and, and black uh, underground railroad people led by uh, Harriet Tubman and things like this. They had these organized groups and underground railroads. That's what they called it, an underground, not to be confused with a subway or a tube. And they would do this, but the, the, the language they would speak and the parables they would speak it was so the white plantation owners who owned slaves wouldn't know what they were talking about. And that was the origin of jive, of, of jive. you know, today, I had, before I was a Christian, I, I was on drugs in that world. <clears throat> if you see a white person who can speak jive, he's, on, he's either on drugs or he's a jazz musician, which means, also means he's on drugs, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, the, hey, I'm going to go say your head no out, sucker. I'm going to go south on you now. Say what? Um, you know, <laughs> jive, you know. Uh, now, a white person wouldn't know what I just said. I'm going to go south on you now. I'm going to tell you what I really think of you, you know. <laughs> that mama go up, say your head no how sucker. You're going to get your wife mad, you know. <laughs> white people, unless they was, came from the kind of drug world I did, unfortunately, before I was a Christian, they wouldn't know what it meant. They wouldn't know what it meant. Well, parable was like that. It was a language within a language to conceal the meaning. It was a language within a language to conceal the meaning. And it worked by literary comparison, by literary comparison. Now, we have a problem when we look at it from a literary perspective in the time of Jesus. The Greeks had an equivalent in their language and culture called fables. Fables. Most famously, of course, was Aesop's fables, but there were others. This idea of animating animals with human voices and features and characteristics, like Warner Brothers cartoons or, or Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck and Bugs Bunny and things like this. This originated in ancient Greece with Aesop's fables, like the hare and the, the tortoise having their race and things like that. You know what I'm saying? So in, in Greek fable, you used animals as illustrates or as representations of people, as metaphors for, for humans. For different kinds of people, okay? Well, in Hebrew, Jesus would sometimes refer to people as wolves and foxes and things like that and sheep, but 
the main characters in Hebrew parable were not animals. They were, they were actual people. They were actual people. Academics like to say there are multiple kinds of parables. And the three kinds they talk about, usually, there are others. But the main three are similitude. Similitude is where you have a parable that uses like or as. It's making a comparison, like or as. The second is a parable that is simply a narrative. It tells a make-believe story that illustrates something true, something real. And the third is just basically an illustration. The purpose of the illustrations was to remove obscurity or to make something less nebulous. Academics devise these things. Well, let's put all these things aside from the Hellenistic world and from the scholarly world. Let's go back to what Isaiah predicted. Or notice, in, I'm sorry, Isaiah, Psalms, Psalm 78 predicted. Notice it's Jesus speaking in the first person. Listen, my people, to my instruction. Incline your words to my mouth. I will open my mouth. This is the eternal son of God saying and declaring what he was going to do and how he was going to do it before he came. He was declaring this prophetically from before he was incarnated. Okay? He was saying what he was going to do and how he was going to do it. He was going to use parables. But he says, dark sayings of old, which have been heard or known, and our fathers told us. He was going to take things that were in the Hebrew Bible tradition, things that were already known, and explain what they meant. We will come to this later. But also, I'm not going to conceal them from the children. I'm not going to conceal them, the meaning from the people who I want to know it. <laughs> I'm not going to conceal it from those who I want to know it. But it will conceal. Now, with these things in view, let's begin to understand certain things about Proverbs. Why Proverbs? In Hebrew, the book of Proverbs is called the book of parables. Mishlei. Mishlei is the book of Proverbs in Hebrew. It was there. The only thing a parable in the gospel is, is an elongated mashal. A mashal was an example of something from everyday life that taught or illustrated a spiritual truth or principle. For instance, in Proverbs, like a gold ring through a swine's nose is the beautiful woman who lacks discretion. Doesn't matter how good looking she is. If she lacks discretion, well, she may have a gold ring through her nose, but she's still a pig. <laughs> Strong language, but that's what, that's what it says. You know, when you read Proverbs, it's called the book of parables. 
Mishlei, Mishlei. Hence, it is going to be revealed by the Messiah. These things in the Proverbs will be revealed by the Messiah. Let's look at some examples of this. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 4. This is the Mashal. Who has ascended into heaven and descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who's wrapped the waters in his garment? Who has established the ends of the earth? He's the creator. What is his name? Or what is his son's name? Surely you know. When the Messiah came, he would reveal the meaning of that mashal and of many others. But mashals are not only found in Proverbs, even though Proverbs is the book of mashals. Remember, a proverb is an elongated mashal in the form of a story. A proverb is an elongated mashal in the form of a story that uses some kind of comparison as a literary device. He holds the winds in his fist. You know, these kind of alliterations and things of this nature and metaphors or similes. Well, this is what the Messiah is going to do. It's how he's going to communicate. It's how he's going to conceal, but it's how he's going to reveal. What's he going to say? Who's he going to say it to? What's he going to conceal? What's he going to reveal? That's pretty important in Psalm 78. When you look at the Gospels and what Jesus did, look with me, please, to Matthew chapter 13, verse 13. We'll begin in verse 10, please, of Matthew 13. And the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? Why are you doing something that you said in Psalm 78 you were going to do? That's what they're asking them. Even though they didn't fully understand their question. If they did, they would have known why. If they understood Psalm 78, they would have known why he was doing it because he said he was going to do it. And he answered and said, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it's not been granted. For whoever has, to him shall be given, and he shall have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away. I'll be speaking to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing, they do not hear. And then he goes on and he quotes from Isaiah. And in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled. You'll keep hearing, but you won't understand. You'll keep on seeing, but you'll not perceive. 
or the people, the heart of the people has become dull. And with their ears, they scarcely hear. They can hear a little bit. And they have closed their eyelids. They're not simply blind, but they are willfully blind. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return. And I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see, but they did not see it. And to hear what you hear, but they did not hear it. In other words, the Old Testament prophets, the righteous men of the Old Testament, wanted to see the prophecy of Psalm 78, 1-4 fulfilled. They longed to see it fulfilled. But the followers of Jesus did see it fulfilled. Yet the religious establishment did not understand it because they didn't want to hear it. They didn't want to see it. Remember, Jews are a microcosm of the human condition. Try talking to a Jehovah's Witness. Try talking to a brainwashed Roman Catholic. Try talking to a Mormon. You can show them, you can prove to them the absurdity of their beliefs and the incompatibility of what they say they believe with what Jesus taught. You can show the contradictions between Roman Catholicism and the New Testament, between Mormonism and the New Testament, between Jehovah's Witnesses and the New Testament. You can show it. But just like the Sanhedrin, they didn't want to hear. They could hear, but they couldn't understand because they didn't want to. They couldn't see. Well, they could see, but they couldn't perceive what they were seeing because they didn't want to. Now, this, of course, relates to what we see in John 9 and 10. Jesus came that the blind may see and the ones who see may become blind. Those who reject the truth who are willfully blind won't be able to see it. But those who are blind through no fault or choice of their own will be able to see it. He will open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. If you can read the word of God and the Holy Spirit is illuminating it for you, it is because and only because you were born again. It is because and only because the Lord has opened your eyes and opened your ears. It is only because Jesus saved you and me that we can see and hear. Religious people cannot see and hear. They're not just deaf. They're willfully deaf. They're not just blind. They are willfully blind. I have talked to Orthodox Jews, to rabbis, many times tried to witness to them. I've talked to Roman Catholic clergy. I've talked to all these things. Muslims say the Koran's the Third Testament. You can show them the incompatibility 
of what the Koran says about God and Jesus and what the New Testament and Old Testament say, but it doesn't make any difference. Same with the Mormons. You're not just dealing with blindness with most of these people, but with a willful blindness, a willful deafness. Now, this becomes crystallized in parable, crystallized in parable. We cannot understand eternal truths without being in eternity beyond the limited point. The book of Revelation reveals these things to a point. But before John went up there and, 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 and came down and, and wrote this book, God had to have another way to teach these things. And so he did it through parable. A code, a coded speech. Now, somebody who speaks German can learn to speak Yiddish if they wanted to. Wouldn't be all that hard if you already spoke German. But that's for the Jews. A white person can learn to speak jive. That's not for us. A Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness or a Catholic or an Orthodox Jew can have their eyes open and understand scripture. We don't want it. Give us the Talmud, give us the Koran, give us the Book of Mormon, give us the Watchtower, give us the Catechism. They'll never get it. Never get it. Remember, their deafness and their blindness and their incapacity to understand parable is a consequence of their rejection of truth, which equals a rejection of Christ. People who reject truth reject Christ. He is the truth. Well, let's continue. Parable in Greek is paravoli. Paravoli, and again in Hebrew, it's amashal. We have 39 parables in the Gospels, but some of them are the same parable repeated synoptically and so forth. Let's continue. Most famously, we see the parables of the kingdom. These are concentrated in Matthew chapter 13, verses 3 to 8. Let's look again at Matthew 13. In Matthew 13, Jesus tells them in verse 11, these things are mysteries. And they are parables of the Basilea, the kingdom. The kingdom of God is a mystery. Now, a mystery in scripture, the Greek word mysterion, means something hidden from the world, but which is or is to be disclosed to the people, the true children of God. 
it is to be disclosed to the true believers. But it's a mystery. They may not see it as a mystery, but it's a mystery. The kingdom is a mystery. You say the Lord's prayer, thy kingdom come. That's a mystery to the world. They don't know what it is. They have no sense about God's rule. They have no sense about the relationship between eternity and earth. No sense about the millennial reign of Christ. Nothing like that. They don't have anything like that. It's all a big mystery to them. If you gave them a copy of the book of Zechariah or the book of Ezekiel, or the, okay, we wouldn't, even as Christians, we're only progressively understanding it clearer and clearer as we get closer to the Lord's return. But unsaved people wouldn't understand it at all. The book of Revelation or the book of Daniel would look like a science fiction novel or something like that. The monsters and things like that. It's a mystery to them. They don't get it. Try to tell them, look, this is about the reconfederation of world empires. They wouldn't get it. It's a mystery. You can explain it to them intellectually, but they wouldn't be that interested. They'd say you're crazy. But let's look. The parables of the kingdom must be understood and interpreted in relation to each other. These parables of the kingdom cannot be taken in isolation. Let's look. We have the parable of the sower, of the weeds, of the mustard seed, of the yeast, of the hidden treasure, and of the pearl. Let's look at a few of these. In the parable of the sower, it speaks about evangelism and the results of evangelism, the proclamation of the gospel. The sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell next to the road, and the birds came and ate them. The birds are something bad. Others fell on the rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, but they had no depth of soil. There are people who are really enthusiastic about their newfound faith when they first profess faith in Christ, but they're not in a good fellowship. They have no discipleship. They're not taught the word of God. It's just a trend or a fad, and it's over. But then when the sun had risen, they were scorched. And they had no root and withered away. Soon as trials come, they fall away. Oh, I've accepted Jesus. I'm going to be blessed. My trials are over. Now I'm going to be happy. <laughs> yeah, you will be, but not in this life or this world. It's thy kingdom come. It's about the kingdom. It's about the coming kingdom. That's why we should be happy. How can you be happy in this place? Look at it. It's never been any good. I mean, Satan may make it seem good in order to blind and hold non-believers in bondage and to bring them to eternal condemnation, but it's no good. It's never been any good. 
Trials come, they fall away. Oh, I tried to have faith in Jesus, but then this happened and my family rejected me and all that. And I, <laughs> Jesus said you have tribulation in the world. Why don't you go to a church that's taught you the truth? You can find one. Then others fell among thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. Cares in this life. But others fell on good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundred, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Notice one out of four. One out of four people who at some point professed faith in Christ was still following them long term. <laughs> Most people who profess faith in Christ, the majority of them, will backslide or fall away. Many are called. Many are called. You were chosen. Now, that's not God choosing people for heaven, choosing people for hell. The choice is based on their action and their response to the gospel. Well, it continues. And he tells his disciples, why do you ask me this? Well, it's for you to know. Okay. Well, let's look. Same chapter, verse 24. The wheat and tares. He presented another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares, weeds also among the wheat and one way. Now to this day in Galilee, where you see the wheat is growing in Galilee and on the north slopes of the Valley of Jezreel. The kind of wheat that grows there best has a resemblance in color and appearance at a distance to weeds. <laughs> you can't tell, even to this day, you can't tell the wheat from the weeds until you get up close. One has buds and one doesn't. One is good for nutrition, bread. The other is worthless, but they look the same at a distance. There are many religious people who go to church. They can look like a Christian at a distance. <laughs> Verse 26, the wheat the wheat sprang up and bore grain. But then the tares became evident also. Tares cannot bear the fruit. And the servants of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said, an enemy has done this, being the devil, of course. And the servant said to him, do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, no, 
lest while you were gathering up the tares, you may root up the wheat with them. Allow both to grow until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares, bind them in bundles and burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. I told this story before once in a while. True story. I happened to have been in Scotland the night of the Columbine shooting. With that crazy demon-possessed guy shot those kids in that school. I was in Scotland the day it happened. I was returning from Northern Ireland to England, and I was in Scotland when he did it. And that shocked people because people thought things like that only happened in the USA or South Africa or something. They didn't think it would happen in Britain, but it happened in Britain. Same kind of thing. The nation was shocked. People in Scotland were struggling, I believe. I was speaking the next Sunday at a church in Warrington in the north of England. And this Christian guy who would come to hear me speak from time to time brought his unsaved friend to church with him in the hope that the unsaved guy would hear the gospel. He'd been trying to witness and share his faith with this unsaved acquaintance he had, and he got the guy to come to church and hear me speak. So after the service, he introduced me to his friend, and I was talking to his friend, and we got down to the gospel, and his friend says, if your God is such a God of power and love, why did you let those children get shot to death in that school in Scotland a few days ago? Why didn't he stop it if he's powerful? If he's a God of love, if I had that kind of power and I had, I, I love children, I love people, I would have stopped it. Why didn't he, how could you expect me to believe what you believe? That's what he said. I suppose all of us, or at least most of us, have encountered questions like that in attempting to share our faith or in sharing our faith with unbelievers. And to them, it seems like a very reasonable question. It's a loaded question, but it's a reasonable one. And my reply was, first of all, please do not blame my God for what your God does. Jesus said Satan is the God of this world. Jesus said he was a murderer from the beginning. Please do not ascribe to my God what your God does. Jesus said it would be better to have a millstone tied around your neck and cast into the sea than hurt a little child. Satan's the god of this world. I said, let me ask you a question. Why doesn't God abolish evil? Why doesn't he just get rid of it? Well, I'll tell you why. He lets the wheat and tares grow together. The reason God does not destroy evil tomorrow, the reason Jesus does not return tomorrow or has not returned already is simple. If he had, he would have had to destroy me because I was a cocaine addict. 
And if he comes back today, he'll have to destroy you. I was a fornicator and a drug addict. He would have had to destroy me. And if he comes back today, he'll have to destroy you. But because he's a God of love, he's giving you a chance to repent and believe the gospel. Oh, don't worry. He's coming back. Don't worry. He's going to put an end to evil. He's just giving you a chance not to be destroyed with it. Those children, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, Jesus said. Their murder is tragic, but they were Jesus. Where are you going to be? He lets the wheat and tares grow together. Jesus is angry. He said, I wish the flame was already kindled. He wants to burn this place up. Who can blame him? I think sometimes we all want it to burn up. And it's going to become more like that as we get closer to the dawn of Antichrist. But in the meantime, let's look at these wheat and tares. Notice in the parable that the field is the earth. Okay. The field is the earth. Okay. That's what it is. Let them both grow together. When Constantine pseudo-Christianized the Roman Empire for his political ends, there was a need to make Christianity the religion of the empire. So the church was Platonized. It was theology, biblical theology was replaced by Greek philosophy to a large extent. And as the church was Hellenized, what had been Christianity became Christendom. The persecution had ended, it became easier to be a Christian after Constantine. Augustine of Hippo comes along and he says that the field is not the earth. He says the field is the church. The church has believers and non-believers. It's no longer the ecclesia. It's no longer the called out ones. Now, false believers may get in unawares, but the norm for being a Christian is to be personally saved. Augustine says, no, it's wheat and tares in the church because the church is the field. Baptize the babies, baptize everybody, say everybody's a Christian, and let God decide who is and who isn't. 
Christianity was replaced by Christendom. The ecclesia in Greek, the church, the ecclesia, the called out ones, was replaced by organized religion. It was replaced by institutional Christendom, from which, among other things, the Roman papacy would rather quickly emerge after that point. With the post-Nicene fathers, it got rapidly, rapidly further and further from the teaching of Jesus and the apostles and the Hebrew prophets. Augustine got a hold of this one parable and he simply determined the field was the church not the earth. Well, let's come down to another one. We can't look at all of them for the sake of brevity. Let's look at verse 33, the parable of the leaven. And he spoke another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of meal until it was all leavened. Now understand this. Leaven is normally a bad thing. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Your boasting is not good. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. This woman introduces leaven. Some have gone so far as to say the three are Romanism, Eastern Orthodoxy, and Protestantism, the three main branches of Christendom. They may have a point, but what's clear is it's not something good. Now let's look at the previous one, the mustard seed. The birds of the air came and nested in its branches. We have a teaching called the woman and the basket from Zechariah. In Revelation, it says every unclean bird. Remember in scripture, terrestrial birds were good birds. Flying birds were unclean birds. They were not kosher to eat. You could eat poultry. The kinds of birds used in the sacrifices like doves, symbol of the Holy Spirit and things like that, turtle doves. But these flying birds were bad. Mainly. One exception with the eagle, but even an eagle is usually bad. Vultures, things like that, is a bad birds. It speaks of a demonic invasion of the church, much the same as the leaven does. Satan tries to corrupt the kingdom. You see people, oh, it's going to plant the mustard seed if we have a little bit of faith, and then people are going to come to it. And demons are going to come to it. 
Now, how do we know this? Because in the first parable of the kingdom, in the same passage, the birds ate the seed. There's something bad. If the birds are bad in one parable of the kingdom, the birds are bad in all of them. The parables of the kingdom must be interpreted in light of each other. Let's continue. Verse 38. The field is the world. Augustine changed one word. No, the field's not the world, it's the church. Yeah, but not anymore because Constantine made the Christianity the religion of the empire. That's the world. Changes one word. Leaven. A little leaven leavens the entire lump. This woman puts leaven in. They must be interpreted in light of each other. And of course, we have the pearl and we have the dragnet. Let's just look. Verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all he had and bought it. Now, this is a hidden treasure. All the wealth of the world materially cannot buy salvation. All the riches of history combined cannot save one soul. All of it together cannot give eternal life. The pearl of great price. Nothing, nothing, no amount of temporal wealth is nearly as valuable. Read Ecclesiastes. A rich person winds up just as dead as a poor one. <coughs> Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet. The apostles being fishermen, of course, cast it into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew into the beach and sat down and gathered the good fish into containers. But the bad they threw away to a place where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There were fish that were kosher, like St. Peter's fish in the Sea of Galilee there freshwater breed of tilapia, actually. But shellfish are not kosher. You can catch them, but they're not kosher. What's with shellfish? They're at the base of the sea and they eat garbage, don't they? <laughs> they're the garbage disposals of the sea or of a body of water, and they're Freshwater shellfish as well as saltwater shellfish. There are people who are so far into the world <laughs> that they're never going to get saved. Or they may get into the church, but they won't get into the kingdom. 
They got a shell around them. They're unclean. They're not kosher. Now, again, I'm not trying to put anybody under, under any dietary laws. If you like shrimp or lobster, bon appetit. I'm simply speaking to the metaphorical meaning of these unclean fish. Uh, we have a teaching called kashrut and famine. Kashrut and famine, an old teaching. The typology of the Hebrew dietary laws, I would refer you to it. Be that as it may, he gives these parables. Okay. Now, let's look at Matthew 21, 45. He gives this parable. But in Psalm 78, we're told these are parables that existed from old. They'd always been around when the Messiah came, he was going to explain it. This is the parable of the vineyard from the book of Isaiah chapter 5. And then they reject his servants, they persecute them. And in verse 37, they reject his son. And he took them and threw them out of the vineyard. Verse 40, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what's he going to do to these vine owners? And they said, he'll bring those wretches to a wicked, those wretches to a wretched end and rent out his vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper time. In other words, he will take it from unbelieving Israel and give it to a believing church, bearing in mind that the foundation of the church was believing Israel. Rejection of unbelieving Israel is not the rejection of Israel. Romans 9 to 11 makes it clear God has never, will never, and can never reject Israel. The faithful remnant of Israel are the foundation of the Christian church, we're told in Ephesians. But it will be given to others, to a nation, that is an ethnon, a goy, producing the fruit of it. He who falls in this stone will be broken in pieces, to pieces, but in whoever it's fallen will scatter them like dust. Now look at verse 45. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, not just this parable, when they heard his parables, they understood he was speaking about them. And when they sought to seize him, they feared the multitude because they held him to be a prophet. Not when they heard the parable, when they heard the parables, they knew it was about them. As Solomon put it, they knew 
the words of the wise and their riddles. Look with me, please, to Matthew chapter 20. The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out in the morning to hire laborers. And when they had agreed with the laborers for denarius, for the day he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he says, you too go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I'll give to you. And so they went. And he went out about the sixth and ninth hour and did the same thing. And the 11th hour, he went out and found others and said, why are you standing here idle all day? And they said, because no one hired us. And he said, you two go to the vineyard. And when the evening had come, the landowner said to the foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group first. And those hired about the 11th hour came. Each one received a denarius. And when those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more. Denarius was about a day's wages. He paid them all for the whole day. And they received each one of the denarius. And when they received it, they grumbled to the landowner saying, these last men have worked only one hour and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and said to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours. Go your way. If I wish to give this last man the same as you, is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I'm generous? The last will be first and the first will be last. There'll be many people who are big deals in the church. But when we get to heaven, they're not going to be the people closest to the throne. That relates to this. But the point is, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of life, eternal life, through Jesus Christ the Lord. Gift of God is eternal life, Jesus Christ the Lord. Wages of sin is death. The opposite, eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The good thief got saved at the last moment. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Now we only have one deathbed conversion in scripture. <laughs> only one. I think it's a very dangerous game. It's Russian roulette for people who know the gospel and don't make a confession of faith. But if somebody gets saved at the age of 80 or 90, they're going to the same heaven as somebody who gets saved at the age of eight. Now there'll be rewards, but that's something else, not salvation. Well, it's a parable. Now let's understand this. They knew the parable was about them. 
once more, Matthew 13. Ten to twelve, they came said, "Why do you speak in parables? To you has been given the mysteries. Whoever has, much shall be given." Okay. Look with me, please, to Mark four, thirty-four. He did not speak to them without a parable. But he was explaining everything privately to his disciples. Now notice something. The Sanhedrin and the Pharisees knew what the parables meant. This goes back to Jesus' bar mitzvah when he's 12 or 13 in the temple in Luke's gospel. And he's confounding the wise men. They knew what these things meant. The ordinary people were the Am Ha'aretz, the people of the land. As I've pointed out various times, the reason, one of the reasons the Sanhedrin hated Jesus was he was teaching the meaning of the word of God to the ordinary people. False religion has never wanted this. You had experts in the law and Torah. They were religious lawyers. What's it say in John? These people are accursed in John 9 and 10. They don't know the Torah. We know. Who are you to question us? They were religious elitism. Who are you to question us? Roman Catholicism. They only wanted the Latin Vulgate so people couldn't read the Word of God. When people like Wycliffe and John Wycliffe and these guys came along, they wanted to kill them. William Tyndale, they wanted to kill them. They made the Word of God available to ordinary people in a language people can understand. False religion is always an institutionalized power structure out to preserve itself, thinking it can do that with knowledge. Jesus recognized this, and he called them for what they were. Notice it says, although the Pharisees in the Sanhedrin knew it was about them, as we've read. He had to explain it privately to his disciples. They didn't know. It was concealed. But the Pharisees were willfully blind. Hence in John 10 again, I came that those who see may become blind, and those who blind may see. Look with me, please, to Luke chapter 11, verse 52. 
Woe to you lawyers. You've taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter in yourselves and those who were entering you hindered. And when he left there, the scribes and Pharisees began to be very hostile and to question him on many subjects, plotting against him to catch him in something he might say. They were trying to get something on him. Why? You know the meaning of what I'm saying. You understand these parables. Why aren't you teaching the word of God to the people? Remember, all Jerusalem went out to hear John preach in the wilderness because the Levites and the Sanhedrin were not teaching them the word of God in Jerusalem. They had to go out to the wilderness to hear John. When Christ comes, it's the same thing. People will not be fed in mainstream churches and denominations. They'll be fed in the wilderness. Of course, this relates to the spirit of Elijah and things of this nature. So the religious knew, but he had to explain to the other people, his own people. He said, the keys are going to be taken from you and given to others, didn't he? Now, rabbis don't see, except for the odd one who gets saved. They don't see. But believers see. We see in part, as Paul says, but we see. Let's look at an example of this. Turn with me, please, if you will, to Luke 21, 29. And he told them a parable. Behold the fig tree and the other trees. Now, for some reason, most Christians that I have come across, and most preachers and even authors that I've come across, have not looked at this synoptically. They only take Matthew, learn the parable of the fig tree. Jesus never said, learn the parable of the fig tree. He said the parable of the fig tree and the other trees. And they try to make it simple. Oh, that's the nation Israel blossoming again and the Jews coming back to the land. Well, it relates to that. That is an aspect of it, but that's not what it is or what it means. Where is the parable of the fig tree and the other trees? What does it say in Psalm 78? Look at it again. I'll utter dark sayings over my mouth and parables, which we've heard and known. Our fathers told us. Whatever it is, it was heard and known. Their fathers told them, but it wasn't explained yet. Where is it? Well, if you're familiar with our book, 
Shadows of the Beast, that's one of the places you can read it at length. But let's look at Judges 8 and 9. Abimelech's conspiracy to betray the, the sons of Gideon, to betray the Israelites. Okay. Yotam was the one guy who saw through it. And he stands on Mount Gedizim. And he explains the parable of the fig tree and the other trees. Verse 8, once the trees went forth to anoint the king over them, and they said to the olive tree, reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, shall I leave my fatness in which God and men are honored and go to wave over the trees? And the trees said to the fig tree, you can reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go wave over the trees? And they said to the vine, you reign over us. But the vine said, shall I leave my new wine, which tears God and man to wave over the trees. So finally they came to the bramble. You reign over us. And the bramble, <laughs> the bramble agreed. The olive trees, the church being a wild olive tree that's grafted in, branches are grafted into Israel. Fig tree, the vine, I'm vine, you with the branches. They all say no. They all say no. And they didn't know who the betrayer was, who was going to destroy them. But Jotham knew because he knew the parable of the fig tree and the other trees. It will be the unfaithfulness of the church, the unfaithfulness of Israel. It'll be the unfaithfulness. Oh, I'm obsessed with the new wine. Worship is entertainment. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my life in this world. That, that's what they're They don't want to stand up. No. It had to be the mountain of curse or the mountain of blessing. Mount Gerizim versus Mount Ebal. He go right back to where Joshua made the blessings and curses. And he explained the parable. It is going to be the infidelity of Israel and the apostate church that is going to make it possible for the Antichrist to get religious power with the false prophet. It's only those who understand this who are not going to be taken in by it. The others are going to be taken in by it. Now try to explain that. Not just to Orthodox rabbis, not just to the magisterium of the, uh, the Roman papacy, 
not just to the World Council of Churches, not just to the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons. Try explaining that to people into the New Apostolic Reformation. Try explaining that to Bill Johnson or, or, or Stephen Furtick's or Andy Stanley or Paula White and these crazy women. They have no clue. They don't know and they don't want to know. Therefore, they shall not know. Any understanding they've had will be taken away, or has been taken away. To understand a parable, a proverb, a mashal, the words of the wise and their riddles. One of the most frightening things that we see in scripture is that the Antichrist will know how to do it. It says in Daniel, he will know how to do it. Just like the Sanhedrin. They were backslidden, they were wicked, they were corrupt, but they knew it. They knew how to do it. The Mishle of Shlomo, the son Ben David of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction and in wise behavior, righteous justice and equity, to give prudence to the naive, to the youth knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire counsel to understand a mashal, a parable, and a figure. The words of the wise and their riddles. Takes wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord's the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The backslidden church, the apostate church, they despise this wisdom. They're never going to see. They're never going to understand the parables. They're never going to get the parable of the fig tree. Never. These things are always in scripture. When Jesus comes, he said, I'm going to open my mouth in a parable, in a mashal, in a proverb, and other the dark sayings of old. Isaiah chapter 5, the parable of the vineyard the fig tree and the other trees, whatever, will not conceal them from the children. But to tell the generation to come 
the praises of our Lord and his strength and his wondrous works that he's done. We're not going to conceal them from the children. Jesus says, Jesus says, we're not going to conceal them. If you're his child, he will not conceal this from you. But if you don't want to hear it, if you don't want to see it, if somebody doesn't want to know it, the question must be asked, are they really his child? A parable will both conceal and reveal. It will both reveal and conceal. That's the way it is. So we see Messiah and prophecy in the introduction to Psalm 78. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Church 860 podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed it. If you have, we ask that you would like and subscribe to the podcast so that you can get daily updates. If you'd like to know more about Church 860, please visit church860.com. Thank you. God bless.